Hi, everyone. Uh, let me ask you a question, three questions, in fact, to start with. First, where do you live? Second, what's going on there? And third, what does that mean for you? How would you answer those three questions? Where do you live? What's going on there? And what does that mean for you? Or maybe you'd say, I live in Kenilworth or in Coventry or in England or in the United Kingdom or wherever you're joining us from over Zoom today. Maybe you'd say there's not a lot going on. With all the restrictions of COVID safety, there's not a lot happening here. Or maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you'd say COVID has caused such complexity in my life, there's too much going on. Or maybe you'd describe what's going on with reference to Brexit. What's going on is we're trying to figure out how things work now that Brexit has actually happened. Or maybe what's going on is that you're trying your best to do your schoolwork online or to stay in touch with your friends. Maybe what's going on is that you're trying to make big decisions at a time when making big decisions seems very difficult. I don't know how you'd answer those questions. All of those answers are right in their way. But however you answer them, it's obvious that these questions really matter. Where you live matters because it shapes how you live. Living on a mountainside is different to living at the seaside. Living in a city is different to living in the countryside. Living in a warm climate is different to living in a cold climate. Living in a rich place is different to living in a poor place. All these things and many others about place shape how you live there. What's going on matters because again, it shapes how you live. What you can do and what you can't do. What's easy to do and what's difficult. What's going on determines your priorities. If what's going on is that a category five hurricane is approaching and scheduled to hit where you live at seven o'clock tonight, that determines everything that you will be doing for the next two hours. So where do you live? What's going on there? These questions really matter. If you don't know the answers to these questions, you won't live rightly. If you try to live as if you were in a warm climate, when in fact you are in a very cold climate, you're going to put yourself in danger. If you know the hurricane's coming and you decide it's time to take a five mile stroll slowly through the farmlands, well, God help you. Where do you live? What's going on? What do these things mean for you? One of the reasons I so love the Bible is that it, it tells us the answers to these big questions of life. In uh, Psalm 119, around verse 99, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me. They make me wise. They give me understanding and insight. And if you would live wisely, if you would have insight and understanding, you need to know where you live, what's going on, and what that means for you. Well, so far, Mark has been telling us the story of Jesus. He's told us who Jesus is. He's told us something about his kingdom. He's told us something about Jesus's mission to rescue sinners. That's us. He's told us that these things have brought Jesus into direct confrontation with the powers of hell and with the ruling establishments of this world. And now that Mark has hooked us in, as a master storyteller, now that we want to know more 
of the story of Jesus, it's as if now Mark grabs hold of you and me and says to us, but this is your story too. This is mainly the story of Jesus, but you are in it. This is your story too. And if you would live rightly, if you would live with wisdom, with insight, with understanding in the story, you need to know where you are, what's going on, and what that means. So that's where we're going this afternoon. We're going to answer those three questions. But before we do, it's important to say that Mark, um, Mark was writing to Christians, to believers, to followers of Jesus. But I don't know who's listening to this now. Um, or who might be listening to this later as a recording. You might not be a Christian. You might not be a follower of Jesus. Or you might not be sure whether you are or you aren't. Well, Mark has something to say to you too. So do listen in and discover what the story of Jesus means for you too. Okay, so first question. Where do you live? I'm going to give you Mark's answer and then we'll see it in the Bible. This is Mark's answer. You live on a battlefield. Now let's see it in the Bible. Turn with me back to chapter 1, verse 12 of Mark's Gospel. And we're just going to do a big picture scan from there up to and including today's passage. So start with me in Mark 1, verse 12. Now this is right at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, just after he'd been uh, baptized. Um, and then he spent 40 days in the Judean wilderness. Now, Jesus tells us, think about it, how else would Mark or Peter or anyone else have known what happened in the wilderness for those 40 days if Jesus hadn't told them? Jesus tells us that he was tempted by Satan. What does that mean? What is temptation? Well, what's the difference between a test and a temptation? God sometimes tests believers. But when God tests us, it is to reveal and to refine Christ-like character. God tests to build up, to develop the virtues of his kingdom in our souls. Satan tempts to make you fail, to cut you down, to lure you into the death trap of sin. Satan tempts to bring you under judgment and wrath. Satan tempts to destroy. Now, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Satan was out to destroy him. This was a spiritual attack, not a camping trip. It wasn't a spiritual retreat. It was battle. Next thing that happens, move on to verse 14. John the Baptist, Jesus's herald, was arrested. And the next time we hear of John is in chapter 6, when he's executed by King Herod. So, so far, a 40-day-long confrontation with Satan, followed by the arrest, imprisonment, and beheading of his herald. And then, verse 15, Jesus begins preaching. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Every rival kingdom, be on notice that your days are numbered. Jesus is on a mission, and his mission brings him into direct, unavoidable confrontation with an enemy power. This is battle. Next, verses 21 to 28 of chapter 1, a confrontation of kingdoms. Remember when we studied this passage, um, was, it, was it two weeks ago, I think, we noticed that Mark, uh, Mark records no interaction between Jesus and the demon-possessed man. 
He only records this as a spiritual confrontation. This is battle. And again, verse 34, Jesus in confrontation with demons. And then pretty much the whole of chapter 2, Jesus in confrontation with the religious and cultural establishment of his day. Well, what is the spiritual power at work in the anti-Jesus religious and cultural establishment of Jesus's day and of our day? Well, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit that is now at work in those who disobey God. Jesus is not engaged in a polite debate. This is spiritual battle. Now we get to today's passage, chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus calls and names the 12 apostles. We'll come to that in a few minutes, but notice, this is important. Notice what comes immediately before and immediately after they call him. Before, in verses 11 and 12, we read, Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others. Whenever, whenever the demons saw him, this is an ongoing, all the time, confrontation of kingdoms. And after the calling of the twelve, in verses 22 and following, Jesus makes it clear that he came for battle. Look at verse 27 in particular. I came to bind the strong man of this kingdom, Satan, to kick down the door of his house and plunder his goods. I came for battle. Again, a confrontation of kingdoms. That's what frames the call of the twelve before and after. They were called to life on a battlefield. And you and I live on that same battlefield. Those first disciples looked ahead to the decisive victory that Jesus would win. We look back to the decisive victory. The outcome of the battle is already settled. If you were with us then, you will remember from Colossians chapter 2, Jesus triumphed over the enemy powers, over the power that rules the air, defeating them forever on the cross. But hostilities have not yet ceased. We know who wins in the end. We know who has already won. But this remains a battlefield. Satan is defeated, but not yet destroyed. Beaten, but not yet banished. Conquered, not yet cast out. In the confrontation of kingdoms, King Jesus has already won, but this remains for a time a battlefield, and that is where you live. If you would live wisely, Christian, with insight, with understanding, then make sure you know where you live. Second question, what's going on here? Again, I'm going to tell you Mark's answer, and then we'll look and see it in the Bible. So, what's going on? On this battlefield, Jesus is setting souls free and making a new creation. On this cosmic spiritual battlefield, Jesus is setting souls free and making a new creation. The first of those we've already touched on from verse 22 onwards, Jesus is the stronger man who binds up the strong man of the kingdom of this world, kicks down the door of his house, 
and plunders his goods. Now, we've already seen that wherever Jesus goes, he's surrounded by demons. They're not ordinarily visible to human eyes. They are spiritual beings. But they're there. That's clear from the scriptures. And we know they can hear Jesus, even just in the first couple of chapters that we've covered so far. Jesus has commanded them several times already, and they obeyed. So we know they can hear him. So why is Jesus saying these things out loud? In the, in, uh, in the art of war, uh, Sun Tzu says, in conflict, direct confrontation will lead to engagement and surprise will lead to victory. Well, Jesus has just given away the element of surprise. Satan has now heard directly from the lips of Jesus that he's come to plunder his house and take his goods. But the element of surprise only matters when you're facing a foe of equal or greater strength. And Satan is no equal foe to Jesus. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 7, one of the ways John the Baptist described Jesus was as the mightier one. Or your translation might say the more powerful one. Now, Satan is a powerful being, a foe greater than any of us could ever match. But Jesus is the mightier one. The kingdom of God is at hand, he proclaimed. Your kingdom, Satan, is at an end. I have come to bind you, to kick down your door, and to take back what's mine. What's going on here? Jesus is binding and plundering. He is setting souls free. And he is making a new creation. Look with me in your Bibles from verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12. He appointed 12. Excuse me. <clears throat> The Greek text literally says, he made 12. It's the same verb, made. Uh, it's the same verb that's used in Genesis 1 verse 1 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the beginning, God made heaven and earth. Now, remember, Mark wrote his gospel for Gentile Christians in Rome. He wrote for Gentile believers, not primarily for Jewish believers. And that's important. Why? Because their knowledge of the Old Testament would not have been from the Hebrew scriptures. They couldn't read or write or speak Hebrew. They spoke Latin, but they read and wrote in Greek. So when these Gentile believers came to faith and were taught the Old Testament, it was taught to them in the Greek translation. So when Mark wrote to them in verse 14 that Jesus made 12, what they heard was Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God made. God made and Jesus made. Jesus was doing something here in the making of 12 that in some way paralleled creation. In this seemingly unspectacular encounter on a mountainside, there's a new creation coming into being. And this new creation consists of 12. He made 12. Well, they would immediately have understood that the 12 paralleled the 12 tribes of Israel, the old covenant people of God. The new creation begins with the making, the creation of the people of God. And how? 
Verse 13, Jesus called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus called, and they came. The new creation comes into being at the power of Christ's word. Just as in Genesis 1, creation came into being at the power of God's word, the new creation comes into being at the power of Christ's word. God said, let there be light, and there was. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Genesis 1. God created by the power of his word. Jesus called, and they came. Christ spoke, and new creation happened. Okay, let's remember where we are and where we're going. We want to live wisely. We want to be those who live with insight and understanding. In order to live that way, we need to understand the story, the big picture that we are caught up in. So to help us understand that story, we're asking three questions. Where do you live? On a battlefield. What's going on on this battlefield? Jesus, the mightier one, has bound the strong man, is now plundering his house, taking back what is his, setting souls free. And those freed souls are the beginning of the new creation, created by the power of his word. Third question, what does this mean for you? Well, once again, the Bible tells us we don't have to guess. Let's read it together and all see it, see it with our own eyes from verse 14. He appointed 12. Now here comes the purpose clause. That they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Okay, so you live on a battlefield and King Jesus is setting captives free, making a new creation by the power of his word. What does that mean for you? Well, first, he calls you to be with him. And second, he sends you to preach and to do. Now, there are some ways in which these things applied uniquely to the 12 apostles named in this text. But there are also ways in which these things apply for all time to all followers of Jesus. So let's unpack those for a few minutes. First, he calls you to be with him. I wonder if you sometimes find this hard. Uh, I sometimes do. To really believe that this is the first call of following, simply to be with him. You see, once we know the big picture, uh, we're on the battlefield, there's a mission. Aren't we tempted to get so caught up in action, in doing, that we sometimes neglect being? With Jesus. We sometimes think, well, we know where we live and we know what's going on. Now let's get on with the job. We want to get straight to the preaching and the doing, <laughs> as if our efforts and activity are desperately needed. <laughs> Tell me, friends, from the picture Mark has painted of who Jesus is, does he appear to need our assistance? Yet our lifestyles, our daily habits, our priorities so often reveal that that's exactly what we think. Do you remember in chapter one, Mark told us about a Sabbath day 
um, when Jesus had cast out an unclean spirit, he'd healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, healed many who were sick, drove out many demons. The whole of Capernaum was amazed. Simon Peter and those with him wanted to set up a crusade the next morning. But there was just one problem. Jesus wasn't interested. <laughs> Jesus had gone off to find a quiet place where he could be alone and commune with his father in heaven. Go, 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 the disciples urged him. More healings, more casting out of demons. Let's get on with it, Jesus. No. Time alone in a quiet place where he would not be interrupted, where he could commune in prayer with his father. That's what Jesus wanted. And look at verse 13 again. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Jesus wanted to be with his father. And Jesus wants to be with those he calls to himself. He saved you because he wanted to. You were captive in the strong man's house. Do you know that? You were captive to Satan. Jesus bust you out because he wants you to be with him. Do you really believe that? Do your daily habits, and I'm not talking about in a perfectionistic sort of way without exception ever, does the general pattern of your life show being with Jesus as a priority? King Jesus is 100% in control of the battlefield. Yes, he has things for you to do, but he calls you first to be with him. The disciples in Mark's gospel were with him by following him around all day. We are with him as we follow him around in the pages of scripture. And then he sends you to preach the gospel and to demonstrate his authority over the powers of hell. Now let's draw some applications for ourselves, both individually and as a church, as Kenilworth Community Church. What do these things mean for us? First application, all Christ's followers, young, old, male, female, new believer, long-time follower, all of us are sent by him to tell others about him. You don't need a degree in theology. You just need to know the basic truths of the gospel. If you can memorize three scriptures, you know all you need to know to preach the gospel. Just three verses. Romans 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Could you memorize those three verses? Three verses, that's all you need. He sends you to proclaim his gospel. Second application. We've spent two and a half years as a church laying foundations, establishing the structures of church life. We've spent a lot of time and energy figuring out how church life works. And all of that has been good and pleasing to the Lord. None of it has been wasted time or energy. But it is time now that we turn our energies outwards 
the church is sent by Christ to preach the gospel and to demonstrate the reign of Christ. Are all our internal structures and ways of doing things perfect and unimprovable? No. But it is time to turn our prayers, our energies to evangelism in this town and to mission beyond. Third application. We are sent to cast out demons. What does that mean? Two things. First, it means exactly what it says. It means from time to time in life, you may come across people who are demon-possessed. And the Lord calls us to cast out demons. Now, I will say, um, I've seen this twice in cases where I can say without a shadow of doubt that's what happened. I have prayed for people who I believe are demon-possessed, and they've not been freed. I don't know why. I don't know why God chooses to do that sometimes and not others. Similar to healing. Sometimes we pray for healing and God chooses to heal people in miraculous ways. And sometimes he doesn't. I don't know why. That is within God's sovereign will that I don't have access to. But sometimes, sometimes we do pray for people to be freed from demonic oppression. And it happens and it is obvious on the spot. I know this is uncomfortable. I know this feels weird and strange and way out of our comfort zones. But the text says what it says. Second, it means to bring the reign of King Jesus to bear wherever you have influence. Uh, where, where you uh, see a situation in the grip of the prince of the power of the air, under his sway, you, just you, are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, the mightier one. You are called by him to bring the virtues of his kingdom to bear in that situation. I'm sure we could identify many such situations, but I'll give just one example because it is, it, it is so um, prevalent in our society at the moment. In the area of sexuality and gender. There can be no doubt whatsoever that um, the enemy kingdom is... Uh, let's say, tremendously <laughs> active uh, in this area, in shaping public thought, in shaping what is acceptable, in shaping um, uh, the sort of moral tone around these issues. Now, we as ambassadors of Christ, as commissioned ones, are sent to bring the virtues of his, his kingdom to bear in that situation in ways we can, in places we can. Parents, that might mean paying attention to what your children are being taught in some of the subjects at school. It might mean a chat with a teacher or a, 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 a school principal. It might mean um, writing to the district council to oppose some things in a curriculum. It might just mean speaking up. It might mean being willing to be laughed at or shouted at or even um, rebuked or cautioned at work for speaking up in ways that are appropriate and at times that are appropriate. We are called to bring the virtues of the kingdom to bear in every area of life where we can. Fourth application, expect to be misunderstood. 
Jesus's own family misunderstood him. That's what's going on in, in uh, verses 20 and 21. And again, at the end of chapter three, calm down, Jesus is essentially what they were saying to him. Take it easy. If you want to serve God, fine, great. We're all for it. But do it like all the other rabbis do it. Don't be such a fanatic. <laughs> well, few things reveal the, uh, the corruption of human nature more clearly than man's inability to understand true zeal for the things of God. Be zealous in this world to make money or to advance science. And the world will praise you. Be bursting with passion to advance a political or a social agenda, and you will be praised from the rooftops. If a man wears down his health in building a successful business, if a woman injures herself in training to qualify for the Olympic team, the world will say they're so committed, so diligent, no pain, no gain, no guts, no glory. I wish I had their resolve. But be zealous for the things of God and you're a fool, a fanatic. You've lost your mind. Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul was making his defense before um, Governor Festus and King Agrippa. And at one point in Paul's defense, uh, Governor Festus shouts at him, you're out of your mind. Your religion is driving you insane. If you will hear the call of the king and give your life to being with him, to preaching the gospel, the gospel whenever you can, to plundering the house of the strong man, to bringing the power and the virtues of his kingdom to bear wherever you can, the world, even those closest to you, will call you mad. But look with me at verses 34 and 35 of chapter 3 as we close. If we live wisely, as people who know where we live, who know what's going on here, who understand what that means for us, then even though the world will call you mad, verse 34, Jesus will look at you and say, you're doing the will of my Father. That makes you my brother, my sister. Let the world say what they will of you. I say, you are mine. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, I want to give you thanks on behalf of all of us here. First of all, that Jesus, the mightier one, set us free. We were captives. There was nothing we could do. We were captive to a power greater than ourselves. But King Jesus came and broke us free. Thank you. Help us, Father, to live wisely. Help us to understand where we are. Help us to see what's going on around us. Help us to discern in the things we read about in the news or hear on the radio. Help us to discern the confrontation of kingdoms going on around us all the time. Make us bold to speak where we must speak. And where we must speak is a lot more often than we tend to. Make us bold to do where we must do. 
draw our hearts to being with our Lord and Savior? Would that be the highlight of each one of our days every day from now until that great day when we will see him face to face? And hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. For your glory we pray these things, Father. Amen.